Hit it. Tune into the manifesto hosted by Emily Wheaton, Logan Cook, and Logan Bishop. The Political Science Society's new radio cast. Catch us on local 107.3 FM and wherever you find podcasts. Boom. Welcome to the Manifesto. My name's Logan. Today, my guest is Joanna Kalen, counselor for St. John. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. It's it's nice out today. A little, little cloudy, but can't ask for much in February. So, first thing I want to talk about is the new school going uptown. Oh, wow. Okay, right off the bat. Right eh? off the bat, yeah. <laughs> Big thing. Yep. First new school built in St. John since 2015 and yep. with Seaside. What do you think about the new school in such a priority neighborhood? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm a big fan of this project. Um, I have volunteered for quite some time at St. John the Baptist, King Edward, to help their middle schoolers learn entrepreneurship and do a lot of fun projects with them when they're in their program there. Um, there's so many talented teachers and people who have supported this community in such a big way for so long that they truly deserve this uh, project to see come to light. And I know many folks have been working on this from as far back as 2017. So uh, we're really anxious to get moving. There's also been another announcement about a new North End School coming um, sort of in tandem with this uh, project as well. So there's lots of, of big announcements that have occurred and I think that uh, as the province moves forward on the design phase, uh, we will hopefully see some solid plans of when this will actually be opening. Talking about design phase, this the museum. Oh wow! Yes. Do you do you have any idea where that's going to go? Because nobody else seems to know where it's, it's going to go. A bit of a mystery right now, and I know that the province has given over the reins to the museum's board to decide okay. what's going to happen, which was definitely a unique move. Um, I'm hoping that that will accelerate it, just given the fact that the province is, like we just talked about, building schools and, you know, doing all these things. Like, there's only so many folks who can make some of these decisions, which I understand um, takes time. So uh, with this board, I'm really hopeful that there'll be way more action way more quickly when it comes to the museum. The, the museum, it should be uptown. It's it's where it was. And yeah. The most to- you get the cruise ship tours, and they love history. And For sure. Right there, but... We got lots of opportunity uptown. You know, there's more land uh, around than we necessarily think, and mm-hmm. there's been some great moves. Actually, yesterday at Growth Committee, we talked about a little bit uh, about the information that came out around our derelict and uh, dilapidated buildings program. Mm-hmm. So hopefully there'll be a lot more action, a lot more... Uh, obvious opportunity for uh, the museum to go for these people to look at so I'm hopeful it'll be uptown it's nice to have something central like that you go to bigger cities you see museums like right in the middle of the the city right so um, I I would hope that that's the choice that they'll ultimately make (laughs) it just keeps going so the Lapidita buildings the Brown House the Irvings they tore down last week you were against them tearing it down. Yeah. We're in a housing crisis. They could have either fixed it up or sold it, turned it into apartments. Mm-hmm. But they, they didn't. didn't. Yeah. What do you think about that whole... Well, I think that's, like I said, about this new uh, sort of initiative around dangerous and dilapidated buildings that we are really trying to figure out how to uh, prevent a brown house from happening again. 
they were completely within their rights to do everything that they did. Um, so even in my comments at council, I remember saying like, it's our fault that this is happening, you know, like we didn't have the right rules in place to make sure we could prevent it. Mm -hmm. So now that we went back and looked at what kind of policies can we create, that's when that work has started to happen. So it really was super eye-opening for those of us who weren't a fan of this project and needed to realize what could we do. Off topic, can you move over? Oh, yeah, sure. I just, it's I'm not, catching I'm not it is, but... Sorry about that. Okay, I thought it was loud enough. <laughs> <laughs> the mics are finicky sometimes. That's okay. Um, key. Yes. Big project, biggest project in St. John since Market Square, Brunswick Square, back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. It will transform, in my opinion, it will transform this, the skyline of St. John, bring these nice luxury, luxury uh, pyramids and condos. What do you think about the whole project? Uh, so Fundy Key is another one that I, I mean, I grew up here, uh, born and raised, and I remember going to high school at St. Malachy's and looking at the old Coast Guard building and having traveled to like, you know, Halifax and Portland and places like that. And I always was wondering why can't St. John be more like that with its waterfront? And it just didn't, we just decided to make it a big parking lot, which didn't make <laughs> much sense to me as a teenager. Um, so even then, that's, you know, 20 years ago now uh, to see where it's come from since then is quite dramatic mm -hmm. and you know throughout that time as well I think we've seen like a huge resurgence of the restaurant scene and the retail and all the places surrounding it so Fundy Key will kind of be that final beautiful puzzle piece that like creates our waterfront I feel and that when the cruise shippers arrive you know they have the new 506 village they'll have some you know park area the park area has already been like signed, sealed, delivered, and that's what they're working on. You can kind of see them working on the uh, ice rink right now, yeah. building the outer edges of it. So everything that the city is committed to has been, you know, funded and allocated and tendered. So you'll see, like, everything come to life this summer, ideally. Um, and then working with Harborfront Group, you'll start to see those buildings. They've done, I think it's two zonings uh, with regards to ensuring they can put this, you know, high-density residential in there. Um, but as with all the projects in St. John, you know, we're seeing different delays and different mm -hmm. issues getting large-scale projects off the ground. So, um, you know, I'm super hopeful they'll be able to get these residential units up as fast as they can. But I'm very happy the city is doing their part in creating the public space in and around it. So it'll just be like, we got to do this, you know. Yes, I, I, I saw an article, I believe, yesterday from Huddle about the old uh, courthouse on Sydney Street, that project is delayed until next year yeah. because of construction delays and labor and yeah. everything that's happened because of COVID ruining our lives for the past <laughs> three years. It certainly has a downward hill approach uh, when it comes to the, the, the issues that hit us, right? Like, and you can imagine uh, St. John being a city among very, very many that are all trying to do big projects. Like, you know, as you know, across Canada, there is a housing crisis, no matter what city you're talking about. So we're all competing for the same amount of things and people to do those things. So I think it, it is it is challenging, but I don't think it's insurmountable. We've seen some incredible work uh, recently done by Coverdale on a, on a project uh, called the Rose House, where they went from sort of concept design to council for rezoning and up and almost ready to open now in about 10 months. So it's not a crazy, impossible feat. It's just, um, it, 
it requires a little bit of luck with regards to accessing materials and people at this very point in time. I was going to talk about the Rose House. I talked about it with Brent when I mm-hmm. interviewed him last month. Yep. By then, it was the, the, it was just they had just announced their opening. He had a little press conference. Yeah. It's a great thing for St. John. It's transitional housing. Mm-hmm. It's housing in a city that has very, very little housing right now. Right. What do you think about the whole Rose House? house? I love the Rose House. I think that transitionary housing is so important. We often hear like, ah, oh, I can't believe there's homeless people and they're in tent encampments and all these things. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have anywhere for them to go out of either the shelters or off of the street, then we are sort of failing as a society, right? Like, we can't complain about homelessness without there being a place for them to go. Um, so that's the kind of work that needs to be done. And people like Mary Saulnier and, you know, Tony at Outflow and Nick Shepard and the gang at uh, at Salvation Army, they're all, uh, you know, well aware that we need to not just have shelters. We need to go beyond that and build transitionary housing. So... That means there's people that require wraparound supports to ensure they're, you know, housing secure. It's not easy right now with the way that, you know, we're dealing with the lack of rent caps. We're dealing with rent evictions. We're dealing with, you know, food insecurity. So all those things need to be looked at by our governments, I think all three levels, uh, to figure out the best way to actually create what I like to call a continuum of housing. So there's always a place for you to go. So if you're in the transitionary housing, you're doing well, then it's like to renting, then it's to owning. Mm -hmm. So there always needs to be like that step towards being able to build personal equity. You know, I'm the only person who rents on council. Everyone else there owns a home. Um, So I'm keenly aware of how my rental dollars pay the mortgage and property taxes of another person. Um, But my opinion doesn't necessarily count as much sometimes in these conversations because I don't own the home myself. Um, But I really think that conversation needs to change because renters really do support the landlords that they pay the rent to. So I think they have, you know, equal, if not, you know, definitely equal amount of say in in how things go in St. John. To continue that, back on the housing crisis, I'm going to graduate here probably in the fall, and housing is not easy to find here in St. John, anywhere in New Brunswick, and the buyer houses seems like a pipe dream for me nowadays. Mm-hmm. What should the three levels of government do to, col- to collaborate on building more housing, especially affordable housing? Absolutely. So one thing I know the city can do uh, is sort of what we're doing around uh, creating our affordable housing action plan. So that's something that is a community-wide plan. It's not just what the city is going to go do. Um, so that was our number one investment. Uh, number two, we're looking at creating a municipal housing entity that focuses just on housing issues in the urban center. While I can appreciate, you know, there's issues in the surrounding communities, uh, the fact is we have half of our population that rents and half that owns. And when you go to Quispamsis Grand Bay, it's 90-10. Yeah. 90% ownership, 10% renting. So the issues are different vastly. Uh, so we figured, Brent and I put in a motion that was accepted in the fall to look at the creation of a municipal housing entity. They call them authorities or commissions and other municipalities, but it is something that... Uh, allows us to focus in because the province, while they do have a newly established housing uh, ministry of housing, they have to look at everybody. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of folks in New Brunswick who are, you know, very rural focused. And there's some great folks out there, a guy named Peter Corbin working on rural housing innovation stuff. Um, 
which is great. That's why we need to be able to focus on the St. John issues ourselves. And, and those of us here know more than, uh, more than other places uh, that the council and people in the community are very close to the issue versus like talking to Fredericton or Ottawa about it. They're, they're so far away from the local problems. They yeah. just think everyone has the same problems when that's definitely not true. Yeah, like I'm a big believer in human-centered design, which says you got to look at the user group mm -hmm. in order to solve issues for that user group. So if you're taking all of Canada, you can't possibly come up with a one-size-fits-all solution, right? Like it's impossible. So I'm really hopeful that... Um, by like asking the three levels of government to say, you know, hey, we want to look at this and solve our problems locally. You should, you have the mandate to pay for those people to be housed or whatever it is. Uh, so just invest in us. Invest in us being the ones who can help solve this problem. Um, that's my big dream uh, because I, uh, I do appreciate that, you know, not all like of, of every dollar that is spent by the taxpayer, only eight cents of it comes back to the municipality. So I understand we can't be the ones to solve, you know, every single issue. But I do believe there are certain things we can do to get out of the way of uh, people who are trying to do this work or create things that can uh, be problem solvers directly for the locals, like an entity. Something I talked about to Brent, and he was a big fan of it, was the vacant property tax. Yes. I think it's a great idea, mm -hmm. people keeping these properties vacant for no good reason other than greed. Right. What do you think about a vacant property tax? I am huge about it. I love it. I think that it's irresponsible um, to constantly look at properties as if uh, the individual is more important than the neighborhood or the community at large. Yeah. Um, I've read some recently that nobody really owns property. They're stewards of it. And I love that quote because it's like, you are not going to live there forever. We, we all don't make it out of here live. So really all we're doing is being good caretakers for the properties that were left to us. Mm -hmm. um, so the way that GNB has set up their, you know, uh, process for getting these buildings sold or taken off the books, even though they haven't had their taxes paid in years, uh, very much favors the owner to give them a lot of time to be able to get in touch or to reconsider or to do what they got to do and do the right thing. Um, unfortunately, we don't see people act on their best behavior all the time. And that's why <laughs> government does unfortunately have to come in and limit some of the behaviors that are negative and do go against the community and don't make it uh, livable and wonderful as it should be. I honestly think we should go a step farther beyond buildings and look at a vacant lot tax as well. Mm -hmm. If you walk around North End, you walk around the South End and West Side, various places, you will see just empty lots that are idle that, you know, probably pay like one of the lowest amounts of tax because there's no property on it at all. Uh, why would you be incentivized to get rid of it, right? Like it's, it's probably, you're not paying the tax on it, whatever. But easy to roll in and build something there because it's completely vacant. There's not even a building on it. So I'd love to see it go next level, but that is not where we're at right now. <laughs> something that St. John's for some reason took a big interest in were the new container cranes. Yes. Those came in and people were, they were ecstatic about it. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of funny, but what do you think about the port's rapid expansion? 
Um, well, it's interesting. You know, Craig Esterbrooks, the new Port CEO, he'd be a great guest for you, actually. He's a really interesting Good suggestion. Guy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Craig is is uh, my age. We're in our you know, mid-30s, and uh, he's making some big moves down there. Uh, very innovative, very creative, while also, you know, taking into account, like, the big business stuff they work with, which is the yeah. cruise industry, et cetera, right? Like, it's a big, it's a lot of work. Uh, so with 506, I love to see a partnership like that with folks like Ray Gracewood and Terry Wagner, who are very uh, well-versed in ambiance, you know, you know, creating beautiful spaces, place-making, event-making, all that stuff, uh, to come together and just animate that port. Like I said earlier in this, you know, looking at that port as a teenager, it was solely for industry. No yeah. one could really go there. So now it's actually a place we can inhabit. And I'm a huge fan of the Area 506 Festival. I already have my tickets. It's the best <laughs> sunsets ever. Like, we just look like a million dollars with that uh, development. And I think once those, you know, residential buildings and things are there at Fundy Key, it will just all come together uh, as a space that people want to live. Like, look at Halifax. They have a lot bigger waterfront than they do. we do. We have both sides. But the Halifax side is just... Nice buildings, the whole length of just stuff for people to do. Here in St. John, it's still, you get area 506, but it's parking lot, cruise ship terminal, parking lot, cruise ship terminal, empty lots. Mm -hmm. Not very people-centric. So I will challenge you a bit on that. Uh, okay. <laughs> just, we have our Harbor Passage, which I think we under, the underlook, I guess, is the best way to say uh, when it comes to sort of how we perceive our, our port area. Um... It's gotten so stunning, you know, down towards where the new monuments are on the other side of more towards the north end. And then the actual plank boardwalk and the patios that we're going to have here this summer. And then Fundy Key. So I think, you know, to me, it's like this beautiful 45 minute to an hour experience that you get walking around our harbor mm -hmm. versus in Halifax where you have that sort of 20, 25 minute uh, jaunt to and from, like say you're on the Halifax side. I was just there recently, so I remember I remember going down there. But I, I, I love our pathway. I love how nature focused it is. It's not as urban as the Halifax experience. So I will challenge you on that there <laughs> a little bit. I, I like learning new stuff every time <laughs> I do an interview. Um, the, that wind project in Lawrenceville, mm. Birdshell, I see they bought more wind turbines a couple of days ago out of Europe, yep. Denmark, I think. They're very noticeable heading both to, to the city and away from the city. What do you think about St. John Energy like investing in renewable mm -hmm. well, energy sources? I, honestly, like, it seems very poetic to drive by that right now because you see the Colson Coast stacks like <laughs> burning coal or whatever, and then these big, beautiful windmills. And I lived in Denmark actually through an exchange through UMB, and uh, in 2007, and there was windmills and solar farms everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it was it was just the site was normalized, right? And so now we're getting our first visual of that. And I know many of us drive to Halifax and go through, you know, Amherst and see the big windmills through there. And so I just see it as this beautiful, not just beautiful, visually beautiful, um, but is going to, you know, 15% of our energy is going to be coming from that, which is unbelievable. Um, hopefully, as, you know, legislation changes, as we make some moves going forward, we'll be able to increase that number and get even more renewables on board here uh, in the coming years and months, hopefully. We, we we do live on the bay. It has the highest tide, so we could do something with the... We tried something with the water, but it failed. But, like, the wind coming off the bay, mm. especially here in the winter, is so powerful yep. that we can use it to harness our energy needs. But Absolutely. that requires 
levels of government to decide that fossil fuels are just the, not the future of what we need. Absolutely. I, uh, I literally just read an article saying that Irving Oil broke a record for lobbying meetings this year of 31 meetings they had in the last month up in Ottawa. So that was oh, in a... They're going federal now. There was an environmental activist uh, posting it who, who tracks like how many of these, you know, because they have to be publicly recorded that, you, yeah. that these guys meet. So... Yeah, so something's going on. I think obviously maybe they're a bit concerned or maybe they're looking at uh, how they can play a part in renewables. That would be my dream. The uh, Irvings and renewables? Yeah. <laughs> you never that, know. Would, that would be a 180. That would... It would be, I think, you know what? It'd be a fantastic move on their part to come along with it the would future, be. right? Um, but, you know, fingers crossed. That's what they're all talking about in Ottawa. Because, uh, you know, it really is, uh, there's powerful cases to be made for what the oil lobby has done in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I w- also was a poli-sci uh, student here, and I've recently taken some of my skills that I learned at UNB, of course, back to the library to go look at old newspapers and look at some of the narratives uh, that the newspaper was sharing with the community as, you know, different environmental things were coming about, different union things were coming about, different, like, legislative changes, and very often that newspaper would be used to sort of fearmonger or make people fear uh, any environmental or legislative change because of jobs being lost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that narrative has continued through to this day uh, with that particular family and, you know, many other families <laughs> who make billions of dollars, uh, which is, you know, it, lobbying is a critical part about it. And as, you know, citizens, I think we just have to be mindful that that is a very real uh, way that uh, big old companies can influence government. And we just have to be watchful of that and careful of what, you know, sort of narratives are playing out in the news sometimes. I would love to see the Irvings and renewable energy. So, oh, man, wouldn't that... The Irvings having, like, wind turbines and solar farms and also an oil refinery. Maybe they got to phase it out. It's We all know that it's not going to work very much longer, so... Good point. Yeah. It's, all, it's, it, it's for the money. <laughs> it's for the money. So... The city passed a bylaw last year allowing ride-sharing companies to operate in St. John. I think it's a great idea to have more options that you don't have. You don't have to drive around St. John, especially, especially like a Saturday night. Yeah. You know, yeah, you absolutely. know what happens. <laughs> sure do. Um, and I know, yeah, there's limited opportunities uh, for for this right now. Unfortunately, while we do have this bylaw, that's great. Like, it still takes a company being interested in our city, right? To come in and be like, oh, that's absolutely what we want to, excuse me, do uh, and set up. And we have, you know, the folks here um, to make sure there's enough drivers and all of that. Mm -hmm. But um, we have a smaller market. So um, some of my other experiences in business development and uh, sort of consulting and things like that. And if you're a company like Uber or Lyft or whatever, you're going to look at us as like a very small potato kind of in the grand scheme of things. Um, but there's other ones out there. I, I believe there's like one out of PEI that's a smaller entity yeah. that could be a better fit. We also have this uh, bizarre insurance <laughs> situation where, you know, it's almost impossible to kind of get insurance for ride sharing companies like taxi companies. It's super clear. Mm-hmm. Ride sharing less so, new technology, all that kind of stuff. So the legislation hasn't necessarily caught up with the technology here in New Brunswick. And that's why you don't really see them anywhere. You don't really see them anywhere in in in, uh, in New Brunswick. So my thought for the taxi industry would be to get a piece of technology 
and layer it on top of your service. So say it's, you know, vets or whatever. Get an app that tracks the drivers and says who they are and lets you pay your fee through there. I mean, there's so much, you probably build it at, at uh, for students or something, like honestly, at this point, there's so much open source technology. So I just think that there's also an opportunity for local providers to enhance their services too. Yeah. Public transportation in St. John is it's getting better. Like yep. my next question was about St. John Transit and yep. the new flex service on we know that just the west side. What do you think about the expansion of public transportation here in the city? I've been a big proponent of this one since I started. My first motion ever was to actually get the funding from the city to buy the technology that is currently being used uh, by the city. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was something at the time where COVID had decimated the amount of hours that uh, transit was operating. Yeah. So we needed a business case to build it back. Um, and obviously technology can provide you data. <laughs> uh, so investing in that has allowed us to really understand sort of where people are getting it, getting on the bus, where they're getting off the bus, what kind of, you know, frequency is going on, uh, which has allowed them to build a better schedule to build in this flex service on the west side, noticing that, you know, the ridership was down uh, when your buses were continually going through over and over all day. So this flex service is, I mean, I saw, I was, my, I live on the west side and my uh, son goes to Burnhill and there was like three or four flex buses out all going in different <laughs> directions going to get folks and I was loving to see that because you know they're smaller they're going to strategic locations where they know people are um, and getting people where they need to go faster so I'm hopeful for this. I am appreciative of the community for being patient with it because it is new and strange and not what they're used to. I, I remember like when my Harbor Bridge um, route changed like, I don't know, 15 years ago. It took me like four months to get used to it. <laughs> so like, I get it. Like it's not easy to adjust to change. And, and so the community has been great. The staff have been great educating people on it. Um, ultimately it's going to save us money down the road and improve service. So it's kind of a win-win for me. It's a win-win for everybody. <laughs> like, Hopefully we use it more. Get on that bus. <laughs> um, something that's not city-related but provincial is the mental health crisis in the mm -hmm. province. It affects the whole province, not just the cities. It affects the rules. In my opinion, the pig's gamba is doing next to nothing. They seem to be dragging their feet on it as they do with most things right now. What do you think the government should do to improve access to mental health help absolutely i'm on a group with so our police force has a community action group and one of the focuses is mental health because and in my opinion we don't really have a crime problem per se in saint john we have a mental health crisis mm -hmm. um where most people who are you know committing crimes or sort of doing things that are against the law are often uncared for at a much deeper level uh there's a lot of trauma in this community there's a lot of you know uh, folks who have been re-traumatized by the system itself uh, through either the social work, you know, program, which isn't a fault of social workers. Everyone's under-resourced. Everyone is, you know, trying their best. Um, we're hearing a lot of stories now out of hospitals, even on TikTok, like you can find a substantial amount of folks from New Brunswick, which I was really shocked to see, who are telling their stories about going through the emergency room to access mental health care. Mm -hmm. And it's not pretty. It's not uh, anything I don't think, I don't think it's anything anybody wants to be doing. Um, 
So ultimately with these surpluses and the fact that they didn't hire that mental health advocate, uh, which there was funding for that position for three years, that position said unfulfilled, uh, that there needs to be some serious pressure to take mental health stuff seriously. Because ultimately it costs, if we want to get conservative about it, it costs us way more to care for someone super sick and mentally ill than it does to do the preventative care that's required to take care of them in the first place. So like, if we're better at taking people, taking care of people up front, we won't be dealing with these issues down the road, right? So that's what frustrates me uh, about how the conservatives call themselves conservative because I feel more conservative in my views on that. That if we, do, if we stop all this, you know, like reactionary stuff and we do more preventative stuff, like we're gonna see a better outcomes in the, in the years to come. Anyway. Let's talk about healthcare <laughs> on the other big government other seems, the government seems to be dragging their feet on mm-hmm. it. There's a nursing shortage, a doctor shortage, the ERs are overwhelmed, and the healthcare system is failing. What do you think should be done to make it work once again? I'm very scared that, because I'm watching this play out in Ontario, where it feels like they're purposely trying to make it fail so that they can set up this privatized system. Yeah, so it's sort of like, you're going to make it so bad and make so many people not want to go to the hospital, uh, to go to the ER, to whatever, uh, that you're going to take a big chunk of folks who can maybe pay 200 to 300 bucks, whatever it is, mm-hmm. to go get better service. So where are those doctors going to go, right, from the, from the public service? They're going to go to the much more, you know, easily, better, whatever run, instead of uh, any investment in improving the current level of service we have for healthcare now. So... I find that with education too. It's like, let's make it terrible to be in public schools so then we can bring in these private schools and, you know, take the onus off the province to pay for those kids to go to school. It's now the parents doing it. So I am not a fan of the erosion of something uh, in order to bring in privatization. You are purposely doing it. So if you purposely wanted to make it better, you could also do that. And you have a literal army of employees uh, from across the board and horizon. Again, I love human-centered design. And if I were going to go in and try and fix healthcare, you'd be asking almost every single person within healthcare, what is it that you need to see changed? How could your life be better? What is it that you would change about uh, the system if you could and then design a solution from that but I don't hear anyone talking about it like that it's all very hierarchical and top down and it's it's the ones at the top that believe they know about what everyone else who works within the system needs and that's where I feel fundamental change has to occur I can't we can't be um, uh, told like for instance by Premier Higgs recently about the French immersion debacle that that was just a shouting match no that was no. people trying to be heard and trying to be listened to and to get their points across. So, you know, that kind of attitude is what I see from this current government is we don't care about what you think. We're just going to do what we want to do anyway. I, the French immersion debacle, I went to the meeting here in St. John. It wasn't a shouting match. People were angry, but they had the right to be angry. Absolutely. I'm happy that they backtracked on that plan. Uh, Second off, when I interviewed Kevin Arsenal last week, he talked about how it does seem like the government is trying to privatize it, bringing in these travel nurses who make three times as much as public nurses. So I'm like, well, what are public nurses going to do? Will they stay in the public field where the work isn't 
luxury and they don't get paid much, or would they become travel nurses where they make more money and better in better environments. Uh, yeah, Kevin makes a really good point on that. And I have friends who are travel nurses who will go to, you know, northern Alberta or, you know, wherever. And that was the norm usually. It was like, okay, you're going to a rural community. Like, yeah. you're going to go make some extra money. You're going to get, you know, your kind of destination pay or whatever they call it. I'm fine with that. Like, that makes sense to me. But when you have nurses who you're underpaying uh, in this very province... And you're more than fine in bringing in folks from other places acting like, you know, we're the Yukon, which we're not. <laughs> um, it's, it's just, it's uh, it's unreasonable. It's, it's not connecting the right dots. It's like, if you have this issue with the union or whatever, you know, nurses union, um, you got to go work it out. Like, I'm, I'm sick and tired of governments not coming to the table with our public service and truly creating an, a, a a group of folks that are working and well compensated for the extremely difficult jobs they do. Um, and just just the general last 40 years of undermining <laughs> unions in general, I'm not a huge fan of. They've brought us, you know, so much worker rights over the years. And uh, this attitude towards them is really damaging to us as a society, I feel. Yeah, the Hays government has not been great with unions. Like QP... Fall of 2021, shut down. The, the schools were shut down for, what, a week? Was, because uh, more than the, that. the government would not come to the table and agree with them. But uh, we, can't, we can't have it all, can <laughs> I we? I know, it's so true. There's, like, ever, there's so many issues, and you bring up a lot of good ones here today. You talked about the private schools, that new one coming to St. John, mm. new French school. Seems kind of ironic the government's trying to reform French immersion and then boom, a brand new French school run by the French government. What do you think about a new school that's costing like $17,000 a year? Absolutely. No, I, like I said, you know, to ruin our public system in the effort to create a new private system, I'm not a fan of. This situation with the Don Bosco International School, however, I found to be slightly different in the sense that um, it's, it's, a, it's an international investment in St. John. So, Ultimately, one of our priorities as council is to grow the city. Mm -hmm. And so when you are telling us that, you know, we're going to bring 900, there's going to be 900 students uptown. There's going to be all these teachers. They're all going to live in St. John. Like all this stuff's going to happen. That is like a value proposition that I can't ignore as a city council for the benefit of St. John either. And especially someone who's willing to rehabilitate the museum space, which has needed to be re rehabilitated that the GNB has neglected. <laughs> so, you know, all these things come out. Um, and ultimately this school is international versus sort of like, you know, provincially funded really at all. Um, the money's coming from the French government. It's an effort to, you know, embolden the French community. And I often, you know, if this was like maybe even an English school, et cetera, like I think that would be more problematic than the French because we are trying to ensure that the French and Francophone community has a better shot uh, at living in Canada than, than you know, other places, for instance, in, in our growth efforts. Talking about growth, population in St. John has, it's skyrocketed, since 2016, but especially since COVID, people yeah. from, I don't want to say people from Ontario mostly, deciding mm -hmm. that New Brunswick is the best spot to live, which, my opinion, it is. Yes. Yeah. Look at the Bay of Fundy. Look how, <laughs> look how nice it is. It's the best spot, best spot in the country, in my opinion. Yeah. How does the city, how, how does the city keep the, this population growth to continue? I don't think we're going to have any issue with continuing this growth trajectory, honestly. Um, 
couple things. Two new schools, like we talked about yeah. earlier. Uh, when Seaside came to to the West Side, when that school was open, there was a huge influx of folks who moved into Fundy Heights and into those into the area, right? Because brand new school, like yeah, 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 like let's do this, right? Like right down the street, create the playground, the whole thing. So if you do that to two neighborhoods um, in St. John, and we continue with the port expansion, and we continue with Bundy Key, mm-hmm. and we continue with our goal of our local, of our immigration uh, project to attract 12,000 new newcomers in the next 10 years, you, we are going to be dealing with the issues of growth versus the growth itself, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm the chair of the city's growth committee, and I often say I am, I'm like kind of the worst for it because I'm always pushing back to say, are we ready? What do we need to do to make sure people will stay here? Mm-hmm. How do we retain them? Um, I recently passed, got a motion passed with Councillor Ogden regarding daycares. How can the city ensure that we have enough daycare spots for all these people that we want to move here? It frustrates me that we talk about growth and attraction, 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 but like there's nowhere for people to live. There's no daycare spots. There's no spots in schools. Da 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 da. Like, how are we ever going to retain these people if we don't have the things that they are required to have once they get here? So I am constantly trying to make sure our house is in order in order to actually accept the growth that is coming to us. Twelve thousand immigrants. That St. John's population is what seventy-two thousand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of people to come into St. John in the next decade. And so some of the like early calculations are that you know we're gonna need about thirty five hundred new uh, units or yeah. like places for people to live in the next five years. So we have some work to do. <laughs> yeah. If anyone's listening, you know, we need some developers out here who want to do some projects. Um, because like you say, like labor shortage, supply shortage, all that stuff. Like we need to attract bigger players who have access to more stuff and people than, you know, our wonderful locals do. Like, they've been working their butts off to do as much as they can, and I think we just need some really good, solid folks to come in and see St. John as a long-term opportunity uh, and not some fly, sort of, fly yeah, by night. Fly by night, like, speculative, like, let's wait and see kind of thing. Like, we've, ha- we've seen some of that, too, where folks are coming and rezoning properties for development, um, and then just turning around and selling them after that happens. So we have to be very careful that we're not um, facilitating more nasty capitalism ways than necessary. Uh, for the film, I remember what they, what they called the landmark down at Tin King Beach. Great big place. It's great big building. And then they just disappeared. Yes. 91 King Street. No, for Percy Wilbur, good developer, made nice buildings. Mm-hmm. He got too big for his, for himself, and we're going to do this on Kingsley. We're going to put a grocery store here, and it's a hole in the ground. It's been a hole in the ground for a year and a half. It's true. Um, <laughs> I can't deny that. That is for sure. I know our local economic development agency, Envision, is working hard on helping Percy and other developers overcome some of these challenges. Um, ultimately, though, it's kind of like, you know, I own a business uh, in the market, and we look at the the whole uh we were you know really thought like so many exciting things were going to happen as a result of that it was you know definitely influenced us purchasing our business in there all that kind of stuff so i think you know whatever we can do to try and figure out how to get some of these things moving and i I do believe that is the responsibility of developers and those who you know make these investments and if you can't pull it off then you know eventually it may be time to pass the project on or you know 
accept the fate of some projects and, and try and find new ways forward. St. John has a history of people wanting to build these great big things and then just, they never happen. But it makes us sad, it's true. It, uh, <laughs> poor, poor St. John. Poor St. John, but there is so much that has happened, you know, yes. on the flip side. Like, and I know I'm not trying to be toxically positive here, but it is, um, there's been some, some major moves and changes, I think, and just seeing how the port, for instance, is, is going to come together. It's pretty exciting stuff. No pit at the port. Let's say that. Let's hope for that. <laughs> I think my favorite development here at St. John is probably the Telegraph uptown. Yes. That, it, it, just, it just fits so well right it there. Does, and yeah. It looks like it's been there forever, but it's yeah. only been there since, I don't even know, 2019, 2020? Yeah, that block of, of Canterbury is a great example of, you know, because where, where Picaroons is, too, was also this weird car park. Yeah. You may be too young to remember that, but, like, it was a hole that housed, like, five cars. And now, <laughs> you know, as you, like, there's hundreds of people that go to Picaroons every week, and, and Pomodori, and Paddington Station, and, you know, those apartments and everything, so... Uh, that block is livable now. It's not just for cars, right? And so it's uh, it's magical to see. And I think that can happen, you know, all over town. I picture, you know, the North End having little sections again. Um, same with West Side, East Side, wherever you are, like more little neighborhoods like that. Mm -hmm. So... Like walkable, like yeah. you, can, you can walk it, but you don't need a car. Dare I say the 15-minute city. Oh, uh. <laughs> that's all social media's been about this past week is people deciding that it's such... So it's back to my point about the oil companies. <laughs> that is very much an oil company argument because, like, if you think about it, who wouldn't want us to give up our cars? I wonder. I wonder. The companies that are making billions. Yeah. Billions. Exactly. So having a bunch of people out there protesting uh, 15 minute cities that are walkable is a great move. They don't even have to do anything. They just have to sit there and let free, it play out. Free PR. Yeah, free, free PR. PR. That's, it's, it's, you know, chef's kiss. But like, it ultimately, you know, that narrative that are, are that is, it's, we're districting people or we're trapping people or cities are going to become prisons like we live in real new brunswick like you can you could go probably somewhere in the middle of the woods and no one would find you and you could set up your own little commune honestly like it's not hard to imagine that there are lots of places that you can go to not be in urban spaces like no one is telling you you have to live in a city yeah like i don't live in, i don't live in a city mm -hmm. i spend my weeks here because i go here to yeah. UNB, but weekends i'm down home 15 minutes out of here middle of nowhere Great. And like 15 missies, great idea. Yeah. I, I love it, but it's probably not for me. But mm -hmm. I, And you get that choice. Yeah. That's the free society. That's the greatest <laughs> thing about it. And like, you can protest 15-minute cities. Like, I'm happy for you to do that. That's your right to do so. It doesn't mean you're correct, though, <laughs> what they are or what the government intentions are with uh, that concept. Because, again, it goes back to that human-centered design. What do we all need within this? you know, area. I think they should be more afraid of the line thing going on over in, like, Saudi Arabia, where they're building that, like, 71-kilometer line. I don't understand it. That was a, but again, it's a 15-minute city concept where everything in the line will be within, you know, 15 minutes of you, and there's no need for any cars whatsoever. But it's in the middle of the desert. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Who would want to live there? <laughs> it's crazy to me, too. But it's like, that is more terrifying to me to feel like you'd be in this, like, lying down a desert, right? Versus Edmonton or St. John or, you know, Montreal. So, yeah, that's an interesting one for sure. 2020, you mm -hmm. ran provincially for the Greens. St. John, what's the spot called? St. John Lancaster? Yes. 
against Dorothy Shepard. Are you going to run again in the next election? I think it's looking like that. Um, I am so proud of the work the Greens have done over the last few years. Like, it just... To me, it is diversifying the conversation. Um, it's getting us a little bit out of this red, blue, red, blue uh, ping pong match that's been going on for a hundred years. Um, the funny thing about you know even criticizing Higgs is that the liberals were there before, and then PCs, then libs, then PCs, then libs. So like, how do you like everybody's to blame? Everybody's to blame. That's okay. Um, you know, government hasn't been functioning for a long time. Uh, I recently, you know, I saw, uh, talked about another place, and I think it was in the States, recently did a bureaucratic commission or commissioned a bureaucratic commission, meaning they were going to look at the whole entire bureaucracy of the state because they felt like there's something inefficient here, like something is going on. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like with people like the Greens, like they're willing to say stuff like that because it's not it's not it's not going to hurt them in the way that like oh well someone might feel like well it's liberal's fault or it's conservative's fault or whatever 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 maybe it just has gone back and forth so much that our bureaucracy doesn't know what to do with itself right and so i think with people like david coon and kevin and megan in there just challenging some of these hundred year old status quo things mm -hmm. uh we have a better chance of making some nuanced changes to the system overall so I just really value what they're doing and, you know, maybe someday, knock on wood, I'll get to be, you know, in there as an MLA uh, in the future to help with some of this stuff as well. I've talked to both Kevin and David about what the Greens, like their, their plans. And Kevin, I'm like, which ridings do you like want to invest? He's like, all 49. I'm like, <laughs> I, I love the confidence. Like, we can invest everywhere and we can win. Yeah. In places that people don't think we can win. Well, our last slate had half over half women candidates, and that's like unheard of mm -hmm. uh, in New Brunswick. So I was super proud to be a part of that, and um, they really do take our opinions and our thoughts about you know policy and party direction and all that kind of stuff very much to heart. Um, I've you know I've considered all things when it comes to politics because I just want to do good work and be a good value to my community. Like I don't, the ego part of it is just whatever, whatever. Um, it's just exciting to be involved and to see like how can we actually truly make change? <laughs> because it is, it's a frustrating scene when you're dealing with things that you know you're new to and are a hundred years old. <laughs> my final question is. What do you feel about changing the electoral system away from first past the post? I ask this question to every guest that you have, and they all have different Ooh, answers. all have different answers. What's oh, I'm yours? all about throwing away first past the post. <laughs> and, like, I get in very big arguments with my with my dad about this because he's very much a, a bit of a traditionalist on, uh, and he was a former MLA in the ledge as well. Uh, so he really much believes in the opposite, and I... Um, for the other, because I think, again, like I said about the Greens, they diversify the, it diversifies the conversation. Right now, it's, it looks like all of us are a bunch of PCs, and that's the way it is, when it, ultimately they got like 39% of the vote, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's not really representative of New Brunswick, and neither is our parliament is not truly representative of Canada. So, like, I just think with those two, with making those changes at both those levels, we would actually have more of a representative government of the people that live within it. So I am 100% for PR, like proportional residency. Federally, 2021, the Conservatives won the popular vote and won 40 less seats than the Liberals. Yep. 
the new the, the new Democrats are just they're just getting screwed. Yes. They win twenty percent of the vote, get like twenty five seats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, even the Greens, they get a good amount of the vote. They get one, two, maybe three seats if they're lucky. It's it's, it's not really representative yeah. of the people, right? So, and they, other countries have figured this out. Like this is not rocket appliances, as they say on Trailer Park Boys. Like this is this has been. Um, a, a way of doing things in other countries for a very long time. So I think we just have to get over ourselves being neoliberals and morph into a more social democratic society that I think will take a lot better care of people. Like doing that exchange in Denmark was almost the worst thing for my <laughs> political career. Cause I'm like, okay, so they pay for their education. All my friends who, who lived there, who grew up there, had their apartments paid for. They had a monthly stipend for their food and bills and whatever else. And then they had like two years, like two years mat leave for, you know, everybody, um, all kinds of like banking programs, stuff to help them get through and move through life. Why is that a bad thing? We're one of the most resourced countries in the world. Mm -hmm. We only have 38 to 39 million people, something like that. Mm -hmm. We should be able to take care of every single last person with that amount of money. But we do. But we don't. So how do we? That's my question. How might we take care of everybody? I don't have any. That's out of my pay grade. Right yes, now. well, that's why you're studying here, and uh, hopefully we'll be part of the solution going down the road. Do you have anything you want to say to the people listening? No, I thank you for doing this. I think it's awesome. Um, actually, Councillor Harris and I are starting a podcast called Envy Polypod. Um, we loved your idea, and I know you're going to have to leave school eventually, so we thought, <laughs> how do we put one out in the universe that is just solely focused on New Brunswick politics? And uh, so we're going to be working on that if you want to follow us at NB Polypod on Instagram or Twitter. This has been the manifesto. Thanks for tuning in to the Manifesto podcast brought to you by the UNBSJ Politics Society. I'm your host, Logan Cook.